Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. I am Dean Linke, joined by Christian Labors, the president and CEO of the ECNL, and some people, you know him by just one name, Anson Works. That's right. Anson will always work for arguably the greatest coach in college, any sport, any gender, the great Anson Dorrance, 42-year top man for the Tar Heels, 22 national championships. Anson is our Thanksgiving edition, and it starts after this message from the ECNL. With over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players, the ECNL is leading youth soccer forward in the United States. A new season has kicked off and a new brand identity has been launched, but one thing stays constant. The ECNL is more than a league. Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. This is our special Thanksgiving edition, and we are so thankful to be joined by, without question, the most successful college coach, any sport, any gender of all time. We're talking about 22-time national champion and 42 years at North Carolina, coaching the women's team, 44 years overall. We're also talking about the head coach of the 1991 U.S. World Championship team, the legend that is Anson Dorrance. And Anson, I don't know if you'll admit it, but I'm thankful that you're my friend. I'm thankful to be with you, and I'm thankful to be with Christian Labors, the president and CEO of the ECNL. Welcome to the great Anson Dorrance. Thanks for being on the show. Dean, uh, my pleasure. And uh, what's great, I'm at home right now, and my wife is listening to this wonderful introduction because uh, – as far as she's concerned, I'm the guy that takes out the garbage. So uh, uh, this is really good. I'm going to have these at home more often. So, Dean, thank you. All right. Well, I'm going to turn it over to Kristen Labors for the first layers of questions, and then I'll dive in. Anson, it's been a thrill to spend time with you in the booth, spend time with you on Vision of the Champion podcast, spend time with you as the forgotten press officer of that 91 team. Christian, he didn't remember that I was part of that team, by the way. And uh, <laughs> we still laugh about that, but I'll turn it over to Christian Labors now. Well, Dane, I think the uh, the best press officer is like the best referee. They're in the background and you don't really know. Everything just goes smooth. Appreciate you being here, Anson, and, and uh, really looking forward to, to talking with you as always. I mean, you always have such an interesting perspective and and, and an enlightened perspective uh, and a lot of things. So feel free to take our discussion anywhere you want to go. There's no topic out of bounds. That is what our listeners hopefully want to hear is just authenticity and, and honesty. So I'll just throw out the first question. First of all, congratulations on your new podcast, Vision of a Champion. It's really cool. For those who haven't listened to it, you absolutely should go and get it. And uh, I was listening to an episode yesterday, actually, the one you had with Roy Williams. Um, and you talk about two unbelievable coaches with a lot of uh, a lot of insight to share. But one of the topics in that that I thought was really interesting, and you were talking about how coaches, there's no real answer. There's different things that you try in, in, in reaching athletes, to motivate athletes, to teach athletes. And if one thing doesn't work, you try another thing. And sort of that constant, for lack of a better word, sifting and winnowing and trying to find what works with each athlete. And uh, you were pretty clear that that's the philosophy that you have. I know there's others out there who, who think there are more, more of a way or unanswer, but maybe talk a little bit about your coaching philosophy from that, that respect. I mean, how, how do you work with athletes in trying to get the best out of each of them individually, as well as obviously the team having to have some success? Yeah, one of the things uh, I guess I really appreciate is uh, a lot of my former athletes obviously have such notoriety. They're interviewed on a regular basis, and I get to read their you know, Q&As and listen to them. And actually, in the most recent uh, soccer journal, uh, Michelle Akers was interviewed, and uh, she was asked about her experiences and, and the people that impacted her life the most, because obviously, arguably, uh, uh, we could all say Michelle Akers would always be in a conversation as the greatest player of all time, uh, because she was extraordinarily complete. 
And the thing she said that I really appreciated about me is that uh, uh, we had these discussions about where her game could go. And I really appreciated what she shared because uh, uh, what she said is uh, um, one of the things that was best at with her was trying to construct her life outside of the actual training environments. And I think uh, what all of us have to do as coaches is to appreciate that it's not just the training environment where the player is going to impact and get better. And obviously the famous, uh, you know, quote uh, uh, that uh, the, the note I sent to Mia about the vision of a champion is someone who is bent over, drenched in sweat at the point of exhaustion when no one's watching. One of the things I'm always conscious of is whenever a kid comes back from a break, I always address whether or not they're better or worse. Uh, and what ends up happening in our culture here at UNC is the amount of improvement that occurs like between now, because our season ended on uh, Sunday, and when I see the players again in January. And uh, I am certainly going to address every player about where their game is. And so I think a part of our function as coaches is to figure out a way to find that button that gets the player to work on their own. Because let's face it, there's so much time outside of the training environment. And if we think our only responsibility as coaches is to motivate them during the session that, they're, that you're actually running yourself for them and their teammates, uh, we are avoiding this opportunity to basically try to motivate their entire lives. So much of what we do in player conferences with our kids, much of what I'm do, doing with the kids when I'm chatting with them is, you know, what are you doing right now? And this is really cool. Uh, Jesse Scarpa just texted me this morning. Uh, I was clearing my text before I jumped on uh, with you and Dean. And uh, she's on her way back from the Washington Spirit. She's been uh, released as a player from that team. And she wants to stop and chat with me on her way back to Florida. And uh, she knows what this conversation is going to be about. It's going to be a conversation of how she's going to structure her life to basically get back to where she can be because her... Uh, Scarpa at her best is absolutely remarkable. And so she knows that <clears throat> the discussion we're going to have. So I think one of the things that uh, um, I always am conscious of is where you are now, what you're doing now, what you're doing today, what you're doing this week, what you're doing next week, and where you want to go. So a lot of uh, our construct, I think, for uh, helping a player get to her potential is to drive that platform that oftentimes isn't so much ignored, but is, isn't really mined for all the gold we could mine it for if we can just get them to develop uh, habits on consistent training when they're not with you. Because obviously with you, uh, they're going to work their rear ends off. Uh, they're going to be driven because they're around their teammates. But that's not the players that ascend to a completely different level. Uh, those are players, you know, improve marginally through the training environment. Uh, and, you know, the ocean floats all boats. So, you know, obviously, if they're in this very good training environment, they're going to gradually get better as everyone else in that environment is going to get. But the player that truly gets to her potential is a player that constructs her life outside of practice to get to the promised land. And it's not just involved in uh, things you're doing with the ball. It's watching the game. It's, you know, reading things that motivate them. There's so many different elements that can drive people to their potential. And I think that's an area that we don't exploit enough, that we don't talk about enough, that we don't structure enough. And I really think it's uh, sort of the, the final frontier for the players that are truly extraordinary. Because I don't care what great player you take, whether it's a Tobin Heath or, or a Michelle Akers or the, the great players in the current U.S. roster right now, it's the stuff they've done outside practice. Kristen Press going to Sweden and having a completely different mindset and how she was going to uh, reconstruct her game. And all these different players, they all have a story. And I think uh, that story is something all of us should appreciate because that story is oftentimes outside the training environment. So I think that's something that all of us should dive into as coaches and try to construct and motivate in a very aggressive way. A lot of what you're talking about there probably comes under the general term culture, which I think is a term that's thrown around a lot without a lot of... Um, real uh, detailed analysis of what it includes. Um, so I, I've always been of the opinion that I'll take, I would take an excellent culture with average instruction over excellent instruction and an average culture. And Doug Lemoff may take some issues with that when we talk to him next week, Dean, 
But I think my, the point is that if you have something that's driving people 24 seven, um, that's going to, that's going to drive more return than, than just some really, uh, some really effective um, instructional information. So when you look at culture, how, how do you build a culture like that, that drives and, and motivates and holds standards of accountability and, and however else you would define an elite culture? So maybe what is an elite culture to you and how do you build it? Well, honestly, uh, when I started coaching, uh, all I was concerned about was the, the training environment itself. I was just concerned about whether or not I was any good at it. I was just concerned about X's and O's. I was concerned about, you know, what followed what. I would go to conventions to steal ideas on different, I guess, drills to do during my practices. And, and I thought I would arrive as a coach if I could just pick the best, you know, shooting exercise and the best possessional exercise and then slap it all together and, and try to figure out a way to, to construct it in that fashion. But the older I've uh, gotten in the coaching profession, the more I can completely appreciate what you're sharing, Christian, because you're absolutely spot on. And now what we do is we actually intentionally talk about culture. In fact, we have a PowerPoint that we share uh, with culture. Uh, and we share it basically uh, twice a year. We share it as soon as the kids get back uh, in uh, August, and we share it as soon as they get back again in January. And the reason we're sharing it twice, and even though they're seeing the same slides, because we set it up as a PowerPoint, the slides, I think, are really critical to remind them uh, about the different elements that can take them and their team to a completely different level. And it's not just about the game itself. It's about the way they treat each other. It's about uh, the boxes they have to check if they want to be truly extraordinary. And within our culture, I think we have two very powerful pillars that drive and shape the culture. One is something that you're certainly familiar with because it's uh, something that's been out there for a long time. And that's what happens during the training environment itself, uh, which is uh, uh, something we boil into this thing we call the competitive cauldron, where uh, the stuff they do in practice is recorded, uh, their results are posted. At the end of the season, they're sort of uh, put together in an algorithm and it sort of spits out the best practice player uh, to the worst. Uh, and it's all a matter of public record. The other pillar is our core values. And our core values are what drive the culture when the training session uh, isn't necessarily a, a part of the thing that's most important to me. And that's where we're trying to shape character. And that actually gets to the uh, thing we were discussing earlier about the things you're doing outside of practice. And so uh, what are you doing outside of practice? Uh, and we talk about these nine different things that can take you to the promised land. Uh, we certainly talk about this in the uh, player conference itself. And I'm meeting with the kids three times a year in a very well-organized and aggressive player conference. I meet with them in August. I meet with them in January. And I meet with them before uh, they go home for the summer. And in those things, uh, we are drilling into uh, self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief, love of the ball love of playing the game, love of watching the game, uh, coachability, a connection and grit. And all these things are broken down. And what we've been really hard at work on is trying to figure out a way to objectify those nine different qualities. Obviously, competitive fire can be objectified with the cauldron. Self-discipline can be objectified with where you are in your beep score. And so many things can be turned into a number. Uh, and these numbers are really critical because they get these assessments three times a year. And these are basically leading indicators. They're telling them whether or not they're going to go anywhere. Because the way we construct them is we do it on sort of a five-point scale. And we evaluate their nine categories in this scale. Five is you're an Olympic player athlete in this category. 4.5 is you're a professional-level athlete. Four is you're a UNC starter in this category, 3.5, you get to play in every half. Three, you get to travel with the team. Uh, 2.5, you don't get to travel or play. And so it gives them a very accurate gauge of where they are I mean, in these nine qualities that can take them to the promised land. And so this is part of our culture. It's done through uh, the core values that they memorize that are shaping their character, but it's also done through the things that we look at that we objectify in a very aggressive way to take them to their potential. Uh, and then, of course, uh, it's driven by the leadership culture. Uh, our leadership council is a very aggressive leadership group within the team. We have every senior on it. We've got one junior, one sophomore, one freshman, so all the classes are represented. 
uh, and we are very, very intentional in the things we construct. But basically our two main culture pillars are the competitive cauldron, where basically you are held accountable in the most aggressive way in practice, uh, and then the core values, uh, which are things the players memorize uh, that shape their behavior. And this behavior uh, is a behavior that creates a positive chemistry, uh, creates a responsible adult, because obviously when I get these kids, they're girls, and our ambition by the time they graduate uh, is that they become women. And that transformation is what's kept me in the collegiate game. Because I had an opportunity to coach the U.S. Uh, uh, women's national team full-time back in the early 90s, and I had no interest. And, and why? Because I felt my place was in uh, human development, uh, which is what the core values do, as opposed to uh, player development. So Obviously, my re I'm responsible for both. But uh, for me, the driving force, certainly as I got older and more mature, was human development. So let, let me jump on that because you, you do, a, I think, a pretty remarkable job of balancing sort of this honesty and accountability in terms of performance and where somebody is, which is not an easy thing for people to hear, uh, especially when it's critical. Hum having humility and creating humility within a player and then also sort of this drive for constant improvement. And I know that that's a really difficult balance because on that continuum, you can go too far in, in this sort of blunt, harsh, uh, uncaring direction, or you can go too far in the soft and general and not really helpful. Two questions. How do you balance that when you're working with players so that you find the right spot that they know you care, but they also know that there's nothing but the best that's accepted? And the second piece of that is you know one of the one of the pieces of uh, advice that I was given once was it's very difficult to change players directly, but if you change the environment, the environment can help them change significantly. Can you kind of put those two things together in your own words and what 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 you think of that? Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, getting back to Scarpa, who's going to be uh, visiting with me this afternoon. She paid me a wonderful backhanded compliment about uh, uh, three or four months ago. She said. Uh, that uh, after she played for me, she thought she could play for anyone. And uh, the implication of that was that, you know, my training environments were so tough that she didn't think there was another training environment she could go to that would stretch her to the same extent, but also basically critique her aggressively to the same extent. She said, but here's the thing I've learned because uh, she's been, you know, playing professionally for a couple of years and she's bounced around a lot uh, with a lot of different coaches all over the world. She said, but the thing I really appreciate now about being coached by you is I could feel the love through the criticism. And I think that's a really critical element that some of us lose when we are being uh, basically, I guess, not so much harsh, but uh, honest. They have to be able to feel the love through whatever you're doing. And here's one way I try to do it. Obviously, as you know, I've got a lot of data that's sitting in front of me for each player to digest. So if we look at those nine different things uh, I introduced earlier, um, I have a number attached to each one. So let me give you the self-discipline thing, which is what I usually start with in my player conference. So when we're discussing self-discipline and all of these different nine things I talk about, I don't give them a score. I want them to give me a score. Now, if I disagree with their score, we're going to have a small debate, but the score that goes into the book is their score, because what I'm trying to train them in is basically self-awareness and personal accountability. So when we do the uh, discipline thing, um, it sort of sets the template for the rest of the conversation. And here's the way it goes. Okay. Uh, you know, what's your score uh, for self-discipline? And the girl is thinking, well, uh, since four is UNC starter level, I better say something four or above because I want to start. So the girl, and I, you know, I know what's going through their minds because obviously I do this for a living. So the girl will say four. And I'll say, uh, um, why do you think uh, uh, your self-discipline is a four? Uh, and then she'll go through some elaborate, you know, BS trying to protect the fact that she should start. And then I say, well, what's the standard for our beep when you come in? 
what's the standard we have for the team when you come in for the beat? Because you do the beat, you know, basically uh, three times a year. You do it in August, you do it in January, and do it before you leave for uh, the summer. What is the standard? And she says, well, the standard for the beep is 40 for us. I said, that's right. I said, well, what'd you get on the beep? Well, I got a, a, a 32. I said, well, uh, I think I should give you for self-discipline a 3.2. Now, obviously the brighter, you know, knives in the drawer immediately now understand that their self-discipline score is going to be taking their beep score and moving the decibel point over one, basically one integer. So if they get a 40 on the beep, then yeah, then I will give you a four for self-discipline. But if you get a 32 on the beep, I'm giving you a 3.2, which means you don't even qualify to play in every half for me. So you're on the verge of not traveling. Uh, so all of a sudden now they get the game. So now the BS flies out, out the window and now they've got to get to the reality of, you know, what I'm going to attach to these different uh, things that we're talking about. <clears throat> and this is really important because what they have to understand is that they're accountable for everything they're doing. But the way I'm critiquing them, I'm, I am personally not critiquing them. They are critiquing themselves because what we do is we use the numbers they have attained and I tell them they're better than their numbers. So I basically say, you know that uh, 32 you got in the beep? I think you're better than that. I think you were either anxious when you were running it, or maybe some of the stuff you did in the summer wasn't the right stuff to come in with the correct uh, uh, you know, level in this. So let's talk about what you did in the summer. And then of course, I've got a record of what they did in the summer, because we have this thing called the Champions Almanac that they fill out for me about what they're doing every day all summer. And then we get to sort out whether or not they did the right preparation and coming in to take the beep test. And so all of a sudden uh, they realize that uh, the numbers are things they have achieved. So the critique isn't me. The critique is their achievements. And then what I do is I let them know they're better than their numbers because everyone is better than their numbers, but they need to hear that. And then, you, then they need to know is what they can do to improve their numbers. Because when they improve their numbers, they're going to get on the field. And all of a sudden there's this transformation as I am leading them by telling them they're better than their numbers. And so all of a sudden, what they know from me is I have huge faith in their potential. And if only they would do this, this, and this, they would get to the promised land. So now it's not a, it's not a my critique of them. It's their assessment of the things they should be doing to get to another level. So that's one tool that we use. So it's not really me against them in the player conference. It's me against their numbers. And then I am their coach. I am their advisor on what they can do to change their plays. So that's the first thing. The second thing, and I learned this from the, uh, the Stanford uh, uh, volleyball coach. Uh, he and I are on a, a, a sort of a sharing meeting together with uh, the Vanderbilt baseball coach, the Alabama softball coach, and basically a, a bunch of coaches that <clears throat> share best practices. What he is incredibly good at is how often he connects with his players. He's always meeting with them. Uh, and 98% of the time, they're not talking about volleyball. They're talking about their lives. And so uh, I am stealing ideas from him. And I've always done this to some extent, but now I'm doing it very aggressively. I am connecting with my kids at every opportunity. Uh, I am trying to demonstrate before every practice the extraordinary things the players have done in the previous practice. Uh, so that with the GPS units, we have six categories that are evaluated in their GPS performance in the previous game or practice. And I read out the top three in each six categories and we celebrate them with, you know, so one, two, three, and, you know, uh, distance. And we read the names out and they clap twice. And so now what's happening is we're honoring the players at every turn. Uh, so for me, uh, this is the way you construct a, uh, a very positive culture to lift them individually, because obviously the training environment is lifting all the boats. This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, our special Thanksgiving edition. And when you have Anson Dorrance, you don't need anybody else. Also, you're very thankful. We'll be back with more Anson Dorrance after this break. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. 
Visit Soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of soccer gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. We're with U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer, United Soccer Coaches Hall of Famer, North Carolina Hall of Famer. If there's a soccer Hall of Fame, he's in it. The great Anson Dorrance, Dean Linky, along with Christian Labors. And Anson, you know, you mentioned that competitive cauldron. You're 69 years young. You look like you could do it 20 more years. During the ACC quarterfinals, they showed some pictures of you and your son absolutely whipping Julie Foudy and Jenny Levy, and you're doing it on knees that have no ligaments. You won every single time. You're that guy, right? You want to win every single time, right? Oh, absolutely. And uh, Foudy was great. She comes into town, and I, I think we were just chatting a bit before one of the games, and she said she had become a pickleball fanatic. And I said, well, Fadi, we got to play pickleball while you're here. And she says, yeah, Anson, I'd love to play. So I said, well, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, let's get together. We got together early on Friday before we played Virginia. We got up, you know, at 730 to play. And then we got up early on Saturday. Uh, and so we were playing basically the whole time Fadi was here. Uh, and she was desperate to win. So she kept switching partners to try to find a partner that could take her over the line. And even though I can't move anymore, because let's face it, yeah, my body's absolutely falling apart. And I am, you know, almost 70 years old. Uh, so uh, it was a lot of fun. And then, of course, Fowdy, being who she is, had the graciousness to admit on the air that we beat her every single game. Uh, and then she showed a picture of us on the pickleball court. Um, and she's just a, a wonderful human being. So, yeah, I, you know, I love to I love sports. Uh, I'm not a very complex individual. I like to read and I like to play sports. And that's about it. So yeah, Fadi was out there. I finally found a sport I can play while I'm dying and it's pickleball. Uh, so uh, my son and I have played Julie and uh, uh, the women's lacrosse coach and, and these are wonderful human beings and we just had a great time with them. Anson, you have been on other podcasts talking about how great the ECNL is. Obviously, U.S. soccer decided to step away from it. So at the girls' level, ECNL is the creme de la creme, and it matters because you find great players, and also that competitive spirit is there. Talk about your perspective of the ECNL, please. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, I was actually in the room when uh, Christian sort of took over. We were at the convention one year. And, uh, you know, they were starting to organize youth soccer in, a, in an aggressive way. And uh, I could see uh, Christian uh, Lavers emerge as one of the leadership forces, along with four or five other people in the room, which I absolutely love. Uh, and uh, I have been a, a fan of, of what they've done. I mean, heck, uh, uh, the American women's game is built on them. Uh, all of us that coach at a collegiate level, we, you know, we sort of cherry pick the best players. And the real work is done at his level. Uh, I've always said that publicly. Uh, these are the great coaches, which is why I hired one. I brought in Damon Nahas, who was, you know, coaching, uh, you know, in the ECNL originally uh, uh, with his uh, youth teams uh, uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, out of the uh, out of Castle. Um, and why did I pick uh, Damon? Because I watched his teams play, uh, and I could see what an incredible coach he was. Uh, and uh, He's the one doing the real work. He's the one coaching these six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, you know, through 16 year olds and taking them to the promised land. And so uh, uh, that's the league that has sustained American greatness. Now, obviously, I think uh, what we do at a collegiate level is we polish it a bit, but uh, we couldn't compete uh, at a world level without uh, this extraordinary organization and the leadership that's within it that has adapted to the American culture. Uh, which I think is critical. You know, we can't just genuflect to what's happening in Europe to build our culture. We've got our own unique challenges, uh, certainly with the size of this country. Uh, and I've really uh, uh, admired and appreciated what they've done uh, because obviously the driver for some of these youth uh, players and their coaches and teams is to get them into college because the other thing about the college environment that's extraordinary is there are a thousand colleges with in effect professional coaches that are trying to take these young women uh, to their human development along with their, their soccer development. And so I think uh, we've uh, built this wonderful structure uh, and I've loved everything that's happened in the ECNL. And the thing I also appreciate about Christian is he has standards for his league, standards for his coaches. He brings in you know, different uh, uh, groups that are experts in player development to help his coaches continue to improve, to get the best practices. 
Uh, and I love all that because if we're going to stay on top of the world, trust me, this whole edifice is built on the largest part of our pyramid, uh, which is what's happening at a youth level and certainly through what uh, the ECNL is doing. And so when that civil war broke out between the DA and the ECNL, I jumped in with both feet uh, with Christian and the ECNL because I thought uh, uh, they were the ones that were are doing things the right way. Uh, and I was just so disappointed uh, in uh, so much of what was going on back then. And honestly, I'm glad to see, you know, uh, who has survived. And the other thing is, we all know, we can't stay where we are. The Europeans are uh, getting more committed. They're putting more and more money in. We have more and more challenges. And so if we stay where we are, if the ECNL stays where, where they are, or if we at a collegiate level, or me in particular at the University of North Carolina, stay where I am, we're going to be passed. Uh, and so I got a great clinic from, uh, you know, Mark Krikorian, my friend that coaches at Florida State, who beat my team uh, to death in that final. Uh, and I've learned some things, which is why uh, we're going to schedule each other in the spring. We're going to find a spot halfway between Tallahassee and Chapel Hill where we're going to play them again. And even though we keep sending kids into the pros and we're running out of players now because we sent, you know, three Brits into the pros, which certainly made us a lot weaker. We're sending, you know, uh, Taylor Otto and uh, Emily Fox into the pros. And so we're going to uh, keep playing Florida State, maybe with our freshmen alone soon to see if we can continue to get better. And so we're going to challenge ourselves. And I know Christian uh, and his wonderful league is going to continue to challenge themselves because this is the feeding system for the U.S. youth teams, the U.S. national teams, our pro leagues. Uh, and I think this collaboration and support uh, that we should have for each other has to be something. And Damon Nahas is now a very uh, extraordinary uh, assistant coach for me, uh, is now taking what he's learned at a youth level and brought it into my environment. And honestly, he's made it better. Really appreciate your comments there, Anson. And, and you said a couple of things that I think would be interesting to touch on. And, and one was sustaining greatness and sustaining excellence. And you certainly know a lot about that and and obviously part of that is that you you never stop there's always room to improve there's always new things to to do and and that's a challenge in every organization and, and in every leader that wants to sustain excellence but for somebody who's done it for so long i mean every every introduction that you get probably gets longer as your career continues to achievement after achievement. So how do you sustain excellence over a long period of time? Because it's very different than being a flash in the pan. What is it that makes you a leader and, and an achiever over a long period of time? Well, I think uh, you've got to start with a certain amount of humility. You can't assume that everything you do is extraordinary uh, because you've won a championship or two. Or uh, if you've had a good run with a great collection of players that you assume that whatever you did with that great collection of players is the margin of your victory, uh, because it's not. If you're not studying the game, and what's really cool about where we are right now, Christian, is holy cow, we have a chance to look at uh, uh, the EPL up close and personally. Are you kidding me? We get better exposure to the uh, English Premier League than someone who lives in London gets. How is that possible? That's because American television is a huge driver for their success. The color commentators I listen to that they hire to educate me about what's happening uh, for all these teams in the uh, uh, EPL uh, is remarkable. I love listening to these guys that are teaching me about the game. I love the coaches they attract. I mean, one of my favorite uh, coaching mentors is now in the league. Bielsa with Leeds. Bielsa the way that Bielsa plays with his Leeds team is the way I try to play with the University of North Carolina. Uh, and here's the other things that are interesting. I mean, for years, I was criticized because we pressed and substituted. Uh, and of course, if you're going to press like we do and play two matches a week, you have to substitute. But I've loved substituting. I mean, I recruit these kids and these are wonderful kids. And I try to play down to 22. I try to play 22 players a game. Uh, and, uh, and I love it because I try to recruit, you know, 26 to 28 players, uh, through the course of four years, I try to carry about 30 on my roster between 26 and 30. And why wouldn't I try to organize a playing platform where I play every player I recruit. And yet a lot of my colleagues take pride in, you know, playing as few players as possible because it's so close to FIFA and they play the FIFA rules and they, you know, try to have a minimum roster. And obviously 
the way they recruit a group against us is by telling them that, well, you go to North Carolina, you're not going to play maximum minutes. You come here and you will. And I understand all that. But you can't really play to your potential two games a week if you're playing 90 minutes a game because obviously you're going to get hurt if you press and play the game at a sprint if you're playing that many minutes in certain positions. And so we have a different philosophy. And here's what's cool about this different philosophy. All of a sudden, the elite teams in the world are pressing. Because keep in mind, I've been pressing for 40 years. And now everyone's pressing. And now what sets Liverpool apart? Yeah, they've got great players. But Salah presses. And usually, if you're this incredible goal scorer, you get to hang out there, pick your nose, and wait for someone to win the ball for you. And then you do your thing under the illusion that, well, I need all my energy to attack. And so I'm not going to defend. And of course, if you've got a great goal scorer on your team, you're so reluctant to put that player on the bench if he or she doesn't defend. That player does play maximum minutes, even though they don't defend. The biggest challenge I have at North Carolina when we've recruited an elite player is that player doesn't defend. This player has all the skill set to play, but they're just not asked to defend at a youth level. Why? Because their youth coach is so afraid about not scoring goals in the next game if that player does a bullfighter imitation as the center back, you know, go, does dribble penetration through them, they're still going to play in the second half because that coach is desperate to win the game. Well, at UNC, if you don't defend, you don't play. It's not complex. Mia Hamm had to defend when she played. If she didn't defend, she was off the field. One of my favorite moments with Mia Hamm in her, her, her final game where they brought in all these players for her to play with and against because it was a tribute to her, she tracked back to defend in her tribute game. Are you kidding me? That's because she was trained at the University of North Carolina. And in North Carolina, when the other team has the ball, you're defending. And so basically, we try to basically encourage this. And so part of our, our structure is to make sure we're learning from all the best in the world, but also to demand a lot from our kids. And what's happening now at the highest level is Liverpool presses. Barcelona had the philosophy of pressing for the first six seconds after they lost the ball. So all these things we've been criticized for over the years are now becoming full circle. And I was joking with uh, uh, Mark Krikorian after he beat us on Sunday about, holy cow, you're pressing and now you're substituting. And if you watch the game, they went direct. We've always believed in playing a combination of the direct and indirect game. And so now Mark Krikorian, one of the best players in the collegiate game, in my opinion, did all the things we've been criticized for years. They substituted and they played direct and they pressed. And so Mark said, heck, you know, you've won 22 national championships. Why wouldn't I be stealing ideas out of your playbook? Um, and so uh, I absolutely loved it. And I tip my hat to him. Because uh, he had a great game plan going in. His game plan was to go direct over the top of my backs and then win the knock, knock down and play possession in my half. And that reminds me of uh, the teams we had 20 years ago, because that was our philosophy originally when we started out with the semi flat back one, three, four, three. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, Mark is beating me now at my own game uh, as we're trying to play through the lines uh, because. Uh, he's showing me there's so many different ways to win. Uh, so yeah, I, I love uh, that there's so much available to us. There's an internet that shares every single coach's philosophy and the way they play. There is this EPL thing that we should all be invested in. And Christian, you know this, the women don't watch the game. We don't, the girls don't watch the game. I love it when one of my girls is dating one of the guys in the men's team, because here's what I know. I know they're watching Liverpool Man United over the weekend. I know this because if they're going to hang out together, trust me, that girl is going to be watching the EPL along with that guy. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we've got to change our culture. We've got to watch the game. We've got to learn from uh, the great coaches that are out there. We have to develop mentors at all levels and then uh, steal ideas that they're, they're doing. But we also have to remain humble about our successes. Uh, and uh, we have to learn that maybe it wasn't just the stuff we did that helped us win. Maybe it was luck. Maybe it was that penalty kick call we got that helped us with that championship. You know, maybe it was this and, and maybe it was that. And maybe it was all these different things. And just don't develop the arrogance that everything you're doing is the best way to do everything. So continue to learn, continue to get better, continue to steal ideas. 
uh, and continue to basically invest in your own growth so you can help your kids invest in theirs. Anson, one quick question. We'll take one final break and then come back to wrap it up with you. You mentioned humility. You mentioned full circle. At the end of the day, you're also a human being. Christian Labors talked earlier about listening to the Vision of a Champion podcast. I think specifically about three interviews. One, Mia Hamm off the top. She always has time for you. The other one, Jessica McDonald, that did not have the best situation growing up and now lives down the road from you, I think mostly because of you. And then Tobin Heath, and I mean this with all due respect, I'm not sure she has time for her parents. She just doesn't talk a whole lot. Yet the way she opened up on your podcast, talking about what it meant to be with you, I felt you were a little emotional there. Can you be honest and admit that coming full circle when these incredible athletes, the creme to the creme, the best of the best, speak so highly of you? Please tell me that moves you. It really does. And um, I say this all the time because uh, <clears throat> I love my family. Whenever anyone in my family uh, extends any sort of love back to me, they get this uh, cliche uh, sent to them, usually <laughs> via text. There's no better feeling than being loved by your family. There is no better feeling. There's no better feeling in the world than being loved by your own children. Well, the way I look at all the kids uh, I coach is they are my family. And when they say things back like that, uh, for me, <clears throat> it does move me. Uh, because uh, as you know, Scarpa points out, it's not easy to survive a University of North Carolina practice sometimes because holy cow, uh, do we get them to, <laughs> to compete hard against each other. But at every opportunity, hopefully what they feel is my love for them. And honestly, I learned this from uh, uh, my church. I'm a, I'm a Mormon. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in my church, we're all teachers. <clears throat> and we're trained to be teachers. <clears throat> uh, one of my good friends was uh, training all of us to be teachers. His name is Peter Peets. The first principle he teaches all of us that are required to teach in this church I'm a member of is love those you teach. And so this is what we all have to figure out. <clears throat> we all have to figure out a way for the kids that you're coaching to know your love for them. Now, you've got to do it all kinds of different ways, um, but they have to get a sense of it. Uh, and that's why uh, this, uh, the volleyball coach at uh, Stanford uh, is really onto something. When he goes out of his way <clears throat> to meet with his players on a regular basis to let them know, how much he cares about their lives outside of volleyball. And I think that's absolutely critical because these girls know my huge affection and respect for them. Every time I watch Tobin Heath play, she gets a text from me. Actually, it drives my wife nuts. I finished, you know, watching the national team play. It's like, you know, midnight. I'm texting every kid on that roster. And I'm not, you know, doing anything but telling them how proud I am of them. And they get it after every game. Whenever I watch one of my pros play, they get a text from me immediately. Every time I'm there, you know, in person, like I was when the spirit came down to play the courage, I was there, you know, watching my kids and they all knew uh, I was there. These things are critical uh, because you can be an important part of their lives if you embrace them. Uh, and especially when they're down. I mean, there's no worse moment than when one of them gets hurt. Uh, but then you've got to wrap your arms around them and let them know you're there for them. And so, yeah, I was moved uh, to hear what Tobin was saying, uh, because you're right. Um, she doesn't need any of this from me. I mean, and you remember from the podcast, my description of Tobin is uh, she's a rock star. She's not a pop star. And uh, Remember the discussion we had, what's the difference between a pop star and a rock star? A rock star doesn't care what you think. You know what? Tobin Heath doesn't care what you think. But what's important to me, she actually cares what I think. So this rock star who doesn't care what anyone else thinks cares what I think. And of course that moves me, uh, Dean. And you're right. Um, I was emotional to hear this incredible icon of the game uh say things that clearly demonstrated she cared about my commitment to her uh and i really appreciated that 
Really cool moment. We're going to take one more break because we know that uh, you got to run because you're going to hang out with some NBA coaches. But Christian Labors wants to ask you what you would tell your younger self. Get that question. We return to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade, the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Dean Linky with the president and CEO of the ECNL, Christian Labors with the great legend that is Anson Dorrance. And Christian, we've got to come back for one more segment so you can ask that all important question that Anson addressed before we started. Absolutely. And we were talking about this ahead of time. And one of the best things about Anson is you know you're going to get an unfiltered uh, response. <laughs> so I'm going to ask two questions related to each other. One, one Anson, you, you, you said to us off... Uh, offline earlier, which is what would you tell your younger self? And, I, and I'll let that one hang for a second, because I think that your answer to that is refreshingly honest. It's, uh, as I would say, some of your some of your comments are, are witty, but devastating. And uh, I think that the answer to that, uh, that question fits that description. And then the second one that sort of ties back into your your last uh, discussion about sustaining greatness is maybe to ask how you've changed as a coach, not from when you started, but even just in the last five years, where do you think you've changed and grown? So I'll, I'll leave you with those two questions. Well, thanks, Christian. Uh, yeah, and I, I, what I shared with you before we jumped uh, uh, to this recording uh, is that, you know, I've answered that question a thousand different ways. If you had asked me, you know, 30 years ago, I had one answer. You know, 20 years ago, it was a different one. You know, 10 years ago, a different one. And finally, I got fed up with all of my invented answers. And here's the truth. What would I tell my younger self? I wouldn't tell him a damn thing. I want that cocky little guy to suffer. I want him to know that when he makes a mistake, he's got to recover. Uh, because I think the way I've really grown is by acknowledging a mistake and correcting it. Um, and But also uh, to have the adversity to suffer for a while. Uh, because I think that's the way we grow. Um, and, uh, you know, when we talk about, you know, Carol Dweck and we talk about growth mindset, there's not a, you know, a sports psychologist out there or a psychologist in general that won't tell you that most of your growth is done through adversity. Uh, most of your growth is done where you've collided with something and then all of a sudden uh, you've had to get back up after being knocked down. Those are your greatest growth periods. And so why would I want to, you know, grease the rails for my younger self? Why would I want him uh, to be saved from some of his worst mistakes? Because I wouldn't change anything uh, because almost every one of my major growth periods were following uh, something that was very, very difficult for me. Uh, and it was, it was about uh, getting back up. Uh, and you and I talked about this earlier. I mean, the classic parent these days doesn't understand they're ruining their children. Originally, we had the helicopter parent that hovered above their, their child and, you know, helped them, you know, guide them through all the parts of their lives, which is ridiculous. I talk about, you know, raising a, a Casper milk toast. If you want to make sure your kid is that, then yeah, be a helicopter parent. And now the modern parents, even worse, the snowplow parent, pushing every obstacle out of the way from in front of their children, like those parents that bought their kids into, you know, the Stanford sailing team or the uh, USC uh, rowing team, making sure they never had to achieve anything to get anything. I mean, are you kidding me? So I wouldn't tell that younger self anything. I want him to suffer <clears throat> because I know how he turned out uh, when he did suffer. He got together and he sorted it out and he made some mistakes. He kept making more mistakes, but he recovered. And that recovery made him so much more resilient. And then, uh, you know, how have I changed recently? I try to change constantly. And in the last five years, my biggest change as a coach was bringing in Damon Nahas, as I mentioned earlier, and most recently, Heather O'Reilly. And now I'm turning more and more of my training environments over to these fabulous human beings that have great insights into the game, that are different from mine, 
And the way Damon describes it, he describes our association now as a fusion, a fusion between his player development ideas that he learned basically through his youth coaching from, you know, U6 to, you know, U18. Uh, he's fusing that incredible experience because of his development academy where every single day he's training one team after another. And you know this, Christian, because you're in the business. I mean, my gosh. I mean, there are days when he's training six teams in a row. And the lessons he's learned from that are extraordinary. So he's brought that into my environment. And he's fusing that with my cauldron. And, uh, you know, the way we're going to play, which is pressing for 90 minutes and substituting. And then Heather's been brought in as well. And now all of a sudden, I don't have to be the prime motivator like I used to be. And now Heather is so naturally motivational. So she's taken over, you know, more of that part for me. Uh, but also the fact that she's a woman in my program is also exceptional because basically for years, it was just a bunch of men coaching these women. And now I've got an extraordinary woman that might be considered in the top 10 all time for the United States full team. And so these are the areas I've changed. I've changed by bringing in other voices. Uh, they've helped me significantly. They're running more and more of my training environments. Uh, their passion and enthusiasm and energy are also critical for our uh, continued success. And this is where uh, I'm not a micromanager. I don't have to do everything. I don't have to make every decision. And so bringing them in uh, has uh, set me free. And so now I'm free to do other things like this. And Dean knows this during the pandemic. <clears throat> I think I was the hardest working guy in soccer. I did so many podcasts for so many different people. Uh, I recorded an audio book. Um, <laughs> And I developed an entirely new, uh, I guess, environment for me to grow and learn in. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I've changed significantly. And I hope to continue to, uh, by the way, uh, Christian. Well, I really appreciate your time. And, and I was just thinking about how I would describe these discussions with you. And it's, it's a bit, if you look back at your answers and the philosophies that you, you're talking about, it's it's sort of, and I think you'll appreciate this, it's a combination of a little Vince Lombardi, a little Victor Frankel, and a little Marcus Aurelius. And uh, those who, who question that, Google them. But I think you'll see a little bit in all of your answers and uh, really appreciate you being here. Really appreciate your support and friendship uh, for so many years. And uh, I look forward, to, uh, look forward to talking in the future. Well, Christian, so do I. And by the way, that was an incredibly wonderful compliment. Christian, yeah, thank you for what you've done for the game in this country. And yeah, let's figure out ways to stay on top by staying humble, you know, learning from each other and uh, certainly helping our kids uh, and each other get to our potential. Happy yeah. Thanksgiving to the Anson Dorrance family. <laughs> Thanks, Dean. Happy Thanksgiving to the Christian Labors family. Thank you, Dean, and to you happy, as well. Yeah, and happy Thanksgiving to the ECNL family. This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, special Thanksgiving edition with the great Anson Dorrance. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.